All right. Thank you very much. It's good to see you all. If you would turn to First John four, if we want to continue talking about the good life. We've been talking for the last ten weeks or so about how to apply the word of God to all that's going on in our country and how to respond in a way that pleases God. And this last message has to do with the whole idea of essentials. You know, we've had a lot of talk about what is essential and what's not essential in our country in terms of businesses and things like that. Well, the most important thing for us as Christians is to ask ourselves, what is essential for us in terms of our responsibility and our responsibility to God and our response to people? And one way to think about that is in terms of the good life. We start off by talking about what Paul has to say in 1 Timothy 6 and highlighting the fact that in various ways the Bible talks about the importance of loving God most of all, loving people, and loving life. And what I've wanted to do uh, at the end of this message is to encourage us to see that um, the good life is a life of love, but that life of love flows out of knowing and believing that God loves us, that that conviction, that that confidence has to fuel what we do. And therefore, it's so very, very important for us to think about this as we think about what's going on, as we face all kinds of challenges and things that could cause all kinds of fear. First uh, John says, perfect love casts out fear. And that is knowing that God loves us perfectly and is loving us perfectly. Indeed, is there anything more wonderful than being loved by God? No, there's nothing more wonderful than being loved by the God who has created us. And therefore, there's nothing more important than knowing that that God loves me and he loves you. That you personally can say, I know and have believed the love which God has for me. Because there's nothing greater than to be loved by God. And there's nothing more disturbing than to question whether or not that God to whom I will answer, loves me or not. And the reality is, I think all of us could say there are times when we have wrestled with whether or not God loves us, is loving us, whether or not we can rest comfortably in the love of God or not. And whether or not we thought in those terms or not, um, all kinds of anxieties and fears and, and unbelief uh, are the fruit of that very kind of questioning. And so what I'd like to do with the time that I have is to kind of walk you through some scriptures that highlight for me um, what we mentioned last week when the theologian I mentioned uh, was asked, you know, how do you summarize all the millions of words you've written on theology? And he said, I summarize it in the way that my mama told me to summarize it. Um, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Now that may seem sort of simplistic, but there have been plenty of people over the course of Christian history who've gone through what they call the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is a point at which you cannot feel the love of God. You cannot see God loving you. All you have is a word from God that he loves you and is loving you. 
And all of us will go through that to some degree or another, those dark times when all we have is a word from God. And so Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is profoundly important to us. And so for the time that we have, I'd like to just highlight some things from the word of God for us. And I'd like to begin where I began last week. Obviously, I'll just kind of review very quickly. But in 1 John 4, verse 16, we have um, John saying, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And all of us have to answer the question, can I say, amen, John, I have too. I've come to know and believe the love God has for me. Now, the question is, on what basis, what, what does the Bible tell me that is meant to convince me that God loves me? Well, the first thing is, and we highlighted this last week and spent all of our time on it last week, it is the character of God. It is the fact that in that very verse, as well as verse 8, it says God is love. The first reason I can be confident that God loves me is not found in my character. It's not found in me. It's found outside of me in the character of God, in the very unchanging nature of God. So that when I read the Bible and it talks about God... That God is the God that I should believe loves me. Why? Because I'm lovable? No. Why? Because of anything in me? No. But because of his character, that his nature is to love. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus came to do was to reveal the Father to us. And he went about doing good and he uh, healed all people that came to him. Were all those people saved? No. Some were, but many of them rejected him. There were just a relatively few um, at the point of his crucifixion who would confess him. But it says in Matthew 9, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. That's love. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so if there's anything even the world will often acknowledge is the loving ministry of Jesus. And that ministry was meant to reveal the loving heart of the God who is unseen. We can't see and hear God audibly, but we can see and hear God in the life of Jesus and in the word of God that records that very life. And so obviously the question is, if God is love, can he ever do anything that doesn't involve love? Is he ever not loving toward anyone? To not be loving toward someone is to sin. The Bible says that the, the, the fulfillment of the law is love. And therefore, if the law is an expression of the character of God, and if he, he himself fulfills his own law, so to speak, because it's, it's his character to do so, then obviously he is always Loving. Well, let me go on to the other things that flow out of that basic understanding of the nature of God. Um, and that would be that God does me good. If you would turn to Deuteronomy 10 and look at verse 18. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. There was an um, adult education creative writing class in which the teacher asked all the students, to write, I love you, 
without using those three words. And to say, I love you, without using the phrase, I love you. And what one student came up with was, she said, why, why, and I guess these are words you would speak to someone else to communicate you love them without saying I love you. Why, I've seen lots of worse hairdos than that, honey. Or, these cookies are hardly burned at all. Or, cuddle up, I'll get your feet warm. Those are ways that you could argue that that person was seeking to love by being kind, by being gentle, uh, by seeking to meet a need. Um, All of you have probably heard of the five love languages. And those are um, one way that you can kind of characterize how different people show love and how different people feel loved. Uh, Things like words of affirmation or quality time or receiving and giving gifts, acts of service, or physical touch. And so the idea is that those things say I love you. Doing something for someone can say I love you. Um, Hugging them can say I love you. Uh, Words of affirmation that may not say I love you still say I love you. Spending time can say I love you without saying I love you. All of those things. And the point is, there are ways of saying I love you without saying I love you. How does that apply to Deuteronomy uh, 10.18? It says in that verse, or these two verses, 10.18 and 19, he, he, speaking of God, executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. So that verse, God doesn't say, go around telling the alien, I love you, or the stranger in your land. That's what they're talking about. But he says, by giving the stranger, who presumably doesn't have many resources or anybody to depend on for their uh, provision, you show them love by giving them food and clothing. And it says that God's people are to do that. And it says God himself loves by giving people food and clothing. So should anyone who receives any food or clothing in this life believe that God is loving them? Yes. Yes. If we receive anything... Good from God, any good circumstances like food and clothing, good health, a job, a place to live, a car, all those things are good things. And I should look through those good things back to God and see them as a gift of God, as a gift of love. That's why the Bible says, thank God for everything, that it all all comes from God. And it comes not from a God who's giving those things reluctantly or hard-heartedly. It comes from a God who gives those things tender-heartedly and lovingly, just like he calls us to do so. He doesn't call us to love people by just throwing things at them that they need and then walking off in a huff. No, he calls us to give people things and serve people. That's why there are other so many other passages we can look at. But for instance, in Matthew 5, Verses 43 through 48, it says, Love your enemies, 
so that you can be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then it says at the end, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the context, perfect probably ought to be understood as be complete. That's another way to translate that word. And what would that mean in that context? Be complete in loving everyone, not just your friends. Be complete in your love. Love everyone just like I love everyone in terms of what I do for them. And what I do for them is a way of saying I love you even without saying, I love you. You know, there are those who will basically ask the question all the time, if God is so good and loves us, why is there evil and suffering in the world? But we rarely hear the question, if God is so bad and hates us, why is there good and enjoyment in the world? If God really doesn't love us, but he really hates us, He's really the ogre that we tend naturally as sinners to see him as. Why is there so much good that we enjoy? It's because he does love us. In fact, you can read people like Matthew Matthew Henry who would talk about the creation and talk about providence and God's goodness in this way. He would say, What attribute of the divine majesty so clearly shines in all the world as his communicative goodness, which is love? The wisdom, the greatness, the harmony and usefulness of the vast creation, which so fully demonstrate his being, do at the same time show and prove his love. And natural reason, inferring and collecting the nature and excellence of the most absolute perfect being, must collect and find that he is most highly good, for God is love. His nature and essence are love, his will and works are primarily love. Strange that God should love impure, vain, vile, dust, and ashes. So you can look at creation, you can look at providence, you can look at God's goodness to people, and we should see it as love. We should see it as love to us. And so, when I'm in my dark place, and I'm wondering whether or not God loves me or is is loving me, I start with the character of God and I say, can God do anything else but love? No. Then I look at the good things in my life and I ask myself, is there anything good? Is there anything good here that I can trace back to God and say, that's a gift of love from God? All kinds of things we could say about that. But if you would, turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and look at verse 27 and verse 32 and 33. I'm not going to highlight all of them for us. There's a story that evidently was found um, written in the uh, catacombs of Rome, and the story was about a Christian slave who belonged, obviously, to a slave owner who took him one day to the slave market and... uh, He helped his slave owner purchase more slaves. He was kind of the slave who had stewardship over the slaves. So they went to this market to buy more slaves. And there there was this old man who really couldn't do anything. And the uh, steward slave named Paulus said uh, to his uh, 
this rich man who owned him, Proculus, uh, let's buy this slave. And the owner of the slaves couldn't figure out why in the world uh, his head slave would want to buy this slave who couldn't do anything, was old and really couldn't serve him well. But uh, Paulus, the head slave, said, you know what, things will go even better if we buy this slave. And so they bought the slave and they brought him home and uh, things did go better. And yet the owner uh, saw that what was happening was Paulus, the head slave, the steward over the other slaves, was working twice as hard as he was before, and that the old man that was purchased wasn't doing anything, and that Paulus was serving that man in every way possible. And so the owner said to him, who is this slave? I got to know. You know I value you. I prize you. Uh, but I want to know what's going on here. Is this old man your father? And he said, no, he's not my father. Well, is he your teacher? Is he someone that you owe something to because they've benefited you in some great way? No, no, he's not my teacher. Well, then who is this old man that you're serving so well? And he said, well, he is my enemy. This man sold... Um, me and my siblings into slavery after he killed my father. And the owner of the slaves said, why would you do this? And he said, I'm a disciple of Christ, and he has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. He's commanded us to love our enemies, and that's what I'm doing. The third reason why we can believe that God loves us and is loving us is because he commands us to love. He commands us to love. When I look at um, God's commands in the Bible to love other Christians and indeed to love all people, I should see him as commanding others to love me as he loves me and as commanding me to love others as he loves them. That's how I should look at it. That's how I should hear the command to love. Um, As I said in Luke 6, it says in verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And then in verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Do you think God would command us to love all men if he did not? Do you think that God says, do as I say, not as I do? There is a story in Matthew 23 where Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. If there is anything hard to do, is to love your enemy. If there's anything that we might consider a burdensome command, 
It would be to love your enemy like this man loved his enemy. And to say that God doesn't love all people and therefore doesn't love me is to accuse God of being like a Pharisee, saying, do as I say, but not as I do. I will not lift that burden of loving my enemies, but you must. So the argument is great that we should see God as always expressing his nature to all men. John Calvin said, he takes, God takes, or excuse me, I guess he's talking about John and 1 John. He takes as granted a general principle or truth that God is love. That is, that his nature is to love men. The meaning of the apostle is simply this, that as God is the fountain of love, this effect flows from him and is diffused wherever the knowledge of him comes. It's his nature to love men. That's why he commands us to love all people, because he wants us to reflect him. When I love my enemy, I don't want to have to argue that I'm loving you, but that doesn't necessarily mean God loves you. No, it means I love my enemy so that I can say I'm loving you even as God loves you. I'm to reflect God in what I do in loving my enemies. The fourth thing is the cross reveals the love of God. I'll have you look at two scriptures. Look, first of all, at John 3.16. John 3.16. There's a famous story about Martin Luther um, with regard to how he came to Christ. And you may remember that he was reading in Romans and he was having a hard time with the phrase the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1. And he talks about the fact that he looked at that as God being a righteous God who punishes sinners. And somehow he understood the gospel to be uh, the news that God is going to punish you. And he said, when I looked at, looked at it that way, that didn't spur love to God in me. That made me hate God when I understood it that way. When I saw God as just being out to punish sinners, it moved me to hate, not to love. But then he said, I kept praying that God would help me to see what the real truth of what Paul was saying there. He said, finally, God opened his eyes to see that the righteousness of God in the gospel is the gift of God's own righteousness through Christ to all those who will trust him. It's actually an expression of love, an expression of mercy. And he said, when he saw that, he said, I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Indeed, truly the gate to loving God. To go from hating God to loving God, what did it require? Seeing the love of God. And seeing the love of God in the gospel, which is the proclamation of the cross of Christ. So that the fourth reason to believe that God loves me is found in the cross. When I look at the cross, I should see the love of God for me. Now, up to this point, you could argue that everything I've said applies to people across the board equally. At this point, there is a difference. And I want to 
to make the difference to you. Um, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now the question is, what does it mean when God, God says in his word here, God so loved the world? Well, the context of the book of John and the context of this passage is the world doesn't mean the world of the elect. It means the world of sinners. It means all people. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said right before that in verse 13, actually verse 14, I'll start there. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That is a reference to a story in Numbers chapter 21 in which the children of Israel, and we know not all Israel are Israel according to Romans 9, but the children of Israel, which was a mixed multitude in all kinds of ways, believers and unbelievers, um, they're being bit by serpents because they're complaining against God. And they cry out to Moses and say, help us. And he prays and God says, make a bronze serpent, put it up on a stick and tell the people if they'll Look when they're bitten to this bronze serpent on this stick, they will be healed. That was a, what you could call a loving offer of life. That was open to every single person in Israel, regardless of their standing before God. It was a wide open offer. It says if you're bitten, and you're dying, and if you'll trust what I say, then look to the bronze serpent on the, the stake. And Jesus says, for God so loved the world. He loved the world in the same way. In what way? By providing a provision, making an offer in love that they might be saved if they will trust his word and trust his son. It was a loving offer to sinners. So every person can look at the cross and say, and should say, in the cross I see the love of God. It's the loving offer of a God who says, if you're a sinner, you need a Savior, and this Savior is able and willing to save you. That is truly love. But Romans 5.8 is the other verse. And this verse is in a different context. It's in the context of talking to Christians. And what this verse says in Romans 5.8 is, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, which is wide open to all expression of love to all, but it is dependent on belief. The receiving of that loving offer and the benefit of that loving offer requires receiving of the Son and trusting in Jesus. In Romans 5, we have Paul saying, now as a Christian who has received that loving offer and trusted in Jesus, how do we know that God is still loving us? He says God demonstrates, and that's present tense. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, 
you keep looking at the cross. When you were called to trust in Christ, you were told to look at the cross as a loving offer of rescue from your sin. Now that you're saved, continue looking at that cross as a continual demonstration of God's present love for you. And yet, what kind of love is that? It's not just the love of an offer, it's the love of a guarantee. And why would I say that? In in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Paul says this. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Talking to Christians. Verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he did not spare his own son, how will he not give us all good things? The love of John 3.16 is the love of a offer of salvation that is real, that is genuine, that is sincere, that is truly adequate. But the love of Romans 5 is the love of a father for his children so that he says, if I would not spare my own son, am I going to spare you any good thing? Would I stop loving you now if I gave my son then? If you doubt my love right now in, in light of your dark place, look at the dark place Jesus was in. Because that dark place says your dark place is really an expression of my love for you. And one day you'll see that. One day you'll know that. Just like if you look at that dark place of Calvary, that too was an expression of my love for you. Augustine said the cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love. Love for sinners and love for saints. Last thing is this. The fifth reason I can believe God loves me and you can believe God loves you is that God calls me to come to him. If you would turn to Matthew 11. Uh, Spurgeon tells the story of a foreman who was being witnessed to by his employer, but he could, just could not believe that he could come to Christ and be saved. Didn't believe he, had, in some sense, had a right to. And so this employer uh, sends this card to his business and, and tells this employee, this foreman, to come to my house after work. And so after work, the foreman comes to this employer's house, and he knocks on the door, And the employer opens the door and says, "Um, what do you want, John? Why are you here? He said, "Uh, well, I got this card. And it said you wanted me to come uh, and see you after work. And the employer said, what are you saying, John? You think just because uh, I gave you an invitation to come that you have the, the right to come? And he said, well, uh, sir, with all due respect, uh, you you invited me to come to your house after work, and I I think I have the right to think I can come. He said, "Come on in, John. I want to talk some more about the Bible and the gospel, because so I want you to know that if God calls you to come, you have the right to come." You have to know that he wants you to come. That's what that means. If he calls you to come, that means he wants you to come. 
because he loves you. That's what it means. To call someone to come, you call them to come because you want to bless them. You want to want them to be a part of your life. Uh, it's an expression of love. And so when I see God and Jesus in the Bible calling me to come to him, as we find in Matthew 11, I should hear that as an expression of love. It says in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Spurgeon said, All our Lord's sermons were so many loving calls to poor aching hearts to come and find what they need in Him. John Piper says, Love is from God and God is love. And these are not at odds because when John says that love is from God, he doesn't mean it's from him in the way letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. He means that love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light and fire gives heat because it is heat. Spurgeon again says, Lost sinners who sit under the sound of the gospel are not lost for the want of the most affectionate invitation. God loves because God is love. And God, for all these reasons, wants us to see and believe in his love. Now, does this mean that God's going to save everyone in the end, like some people argue? No. Does this mean that there is no eternal punishment for believers who refuse the love of God in Christ? No. Does this mean that God's love for the sinner who doesn't believe in Jesus and the love for the saint who does believe in Jesus is the same? No. But what does it mean? It means that every sinner has every reason to believe, and by sinner I mean those who aren't trusting in Christ, those who are in rebellion against God, those who haven't been reconciled to God and are still enemies of God in their own hearts. It means that every sinner has every reason to believe that God lovingly calls him or her to find mercy in his son, Jesus. Every sinner has every reason to believe that God is lovingly calling them to find mercy in Jesus. It also means that every believer in Jesus, every saint, everyone who's been set apart by God for God, every saint has every reason to believe that God loves them, him or her, as he loves his own son. Has every reason to believe that God loves us just like he loves his own son. Do you know that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? Has it changed your life so that you love God, that you love people, you love life? Not perfectly, but you're seeking to grow in that. And finally, have you answered God's loving call to come to him and find mercy and joy through trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you done that? God calls you lovingly to do so if you haven't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. 
I pray that you grant us fresh revelations of your love to our hearts in light of wherever we are today, whether we are in need of a Savior or whether we need to trust more deeply in your love because you have saved us. I pray, Father, that you'd meet us where we are and that you would be honored and glorified as a great and wonderful God who is love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.